0: If you have a Bible with you, uh, let me encourage you, invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 10. That is our Scripture reading this morning, 1 Kings 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, you want to grab one of the uh, ones that are in the chair racks, those blue Bibles there, then 1 Kings 10 is on page 369. Now, the whole chapter, all of 1 Kings 10, is actually in, in view of what we're going to be talking about this morning, but I'm only going to read verses 1 to 15 and then 23 to 25. I think that'll give us enough of a of a flavor for what the author is is trying to tell us. Now, where are we? Where is 1 Kings chapter 10? Where we're well, we're at the um, we're at the last great display of the glory of Israel under the reign of King Solomon, the high water mark, if you will, of the kingdom of Israel. And so, uh, so let's so let's enjoy it. <laughs> uh, let me invite you to stand as you're as you're able, and I will begin reading 1 Kings chapter 10 at verse one. And when I'm done reading, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. 1 Kings chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind, and Solomon answered all her questions, there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the report's until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness." Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as those that the queen of Sheba gave to the king Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almug wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the Lord's house, also lyres and harps for the singers, no such Almug wood has come or has been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked, besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and all the governors of the land. Now skip down to verse 23 where the author summarizes everything. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. This is the Word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, I, um, uh, yesterday afternoon, attended a memorial service for um, the father of Kevin Kozlowski uh, in Delaware. Some of you have met Kevin. Kevin has preached here. He was the, is the senior pastor of the church where I uh, previously served. And Kevin's dad Jack was his name, was a, was a great man of God and an extremely colorful character that I was privileged to know because he lived in Delaware, attended the church for a number of years uh, during, his, during his retirement, and he lived one of those lives uh, where he seemed to do just about everything. Uh, he was a staff sergeant in the U.S. Army, he was a police officer in the Camden City Police force, he was a, a police and fire chaplain, he was a local church pastor, he was a race car driver, he was a small business owner. The guy did just about everything, and he was a phenomenal storyteller, which is why this story that Kevin has told doesn't surprise me. See in the backyard of the house where Kevin grew up in South Jersey, it was a kind of a woody area, and there were lots of creatures—normal, you know, your normal South Jersey woodland creatures, squirrels and such like that. But there were also some things that his dad had to take care of, and you know, dad kind of fashioned a nest of snakes one time, or a, a hornet's nest um, that attacked the kids once. But but the most exotic of the creatures that lived in their backyard were the snowflectors. Snowflectors. Now, as the name suggests, a snowflector came out only in the winter when there was snow on the ground that's when kevin's dad would say to the kids did you see that and the kids would say see see what and his dad would say it's a snowflector. it just ran across the yard and the kids would complain that they hadn't they, they hadn't seen it and he would say well you know i mean as everyone know everyone knows the are extremely agile creatures they move so quickly that if you're not paying very close attention you'll never see them and so, they would just stare out the window, right, hoping to catch a glimpse of the elusive South Jersey snowflector. Now, as the kids grew and as they caught on to the game, they would short-circuit their dad's, you know, little kind of games with a mumbled answer when he would say, did you see the snowflake? Yeah, dad, I saw it. I saw it. Now, there are many people who think of God and the claim of an eternal kingdom where peace reigns suffering ends and beauty overwhelms our senses. They think of a claim of a place like that, they think of it like, like a snowflector, something for a child to believe maybe, but without any real basis in reality or truth, something that can't actually be seen and therefore can't actually be, be true. But what if it actually were so? What if it were actually True, what if there really was a kingdom like that? If there was a claim that there was, then wouldn't that claim be worth investigating? The Queen of Sheba had heard tales of the greatness of Israel under the reign of King Solomon, and she made up her mind to go check it out. The magnitude of the claims that were made about Solomon and the glory of his kingdom were too great for her to ignore. She needed to investigate. She needed to find out if they were true. Now, what about you? In just a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a practice that is commanded by Jesus for us to remember what God has done in the past that points us to a glorious future and that has great implications for how we behave right now in the present. But is it just a is it just a snowflector? Is the message of Christianity to which the supper points, is it just a story for the childish? or is it true? What would you need to see in order to believe it? To consider that, let's look at the Queen of Sheba and what she did. Let's look at it in four parts. They're listed in your bulletin. The Queen's curiosity, what she was looking for. The Queen's discovery, what she found. The Queen's response, how she reacted when she found it. And the Queen's warning, what she has to say to us. Four things, curiosity, discovery, response, and warning. Now, first, the queen's curiosity. It says in verse 1 that the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon. Now, Sheba was located, Sheba, this land where she was from, located roughly in the, in the, the southern most southern portion of the Arabian Peninsula, equivalent sort of to modern-day Yemen, most scholars believe. So, you're, that's putting it about a thousand to fifteen hundred miles away from Jerusalem. Now, how did she hear about Solomon? Well, probably from the traders that crossed through her land and had been through, been through Israel and Jerusalem as well. Now, Sheba was no backward place by ancient standards. It was probably the most fertile area of Arabia, and it was a trading center for luxury goods between Africa to the west and India to the, to the east. And by the way she traveled, bringing all of the, the gold and the jewels and the spices, you could tell that this was a woman and this was a kingdom of some, of some means. By the way, props to the ESV translators for using a word here that my mom would call an SAT word. Right? Did you see that word when I read that? Retinue? Right? When was the last time you used retinue in a sentence? Right? A retinue is basically a large traveling party, a group of attendants who accompany someone important when they go someplace it's kind of like an entourage we would we would think of it right well the queen of Sheba she had one of those retinues she was kind of a big deal so what could have possibly caused a woman of this stature a woman of this wealth to subject herself to the journey of this length and a journey that would have this kind of challenge I don't care if she was a queen right we're talking 950 BC here Right, it's not as if she was hopping on her private jet for a couple hour flight from Sheba to Jerusalem to go visit Solomon, right? This is a thousand miles across the, the desert. What would have caused her to think that this was something that she needed to do? She had heard about the fame of Solomon and she had to see for herself whether it was real or whether it was just a snowflector. Now, many people claim that she was just after a trade arrangement with Solomon, that it was just mainly business, let's make a deal. Or others say that she was just interested in kind of sizing him up. You know, she had a kingdom, he had a kingdom. Let's kind of see how powerful they really are, how smart this guy really is. It's always good to know your rivals, particularly in politics and things. Like, you know, let me look at him face to face, talk to him. But that's that's not what it seems to say here. It seems to say that she came to Jerusalem when she heard of the fame of Solomon, keep reading, concerning the name of the Lord. In other words, Solomon's fame in in, in what she wanted to investigate was not primarily tied up in Solomon's business power or political power. It was primarily related to the name of the Lord. And that was what was uniquely intriguing. Powerful and rich nations, they're one thing, but there were others of those. But she was hearing about this God who had been providing for and protecting what would otherwise have been, in the minds of anyone of that area of that time, a relatively weak people. What kind of a God could this be? And so she comes and she starts asking Solomon questions. Technically, it says she came to test him with hard questions. In some sense, this is this is the common you know, diplomatic practice of the time. You know, combat by combat by riddles. Now let me ask you some let me test you with some questions. You know, like like Gollum and Bilbo in the in the Hobbit if you ever read that or the the classic battle of the wits in the, the movie The Princess of the Bride, Princess Bride. Right? But the queen's goal here was to test Solomon of the extent of his see the extent of his renowned wisdom? Was it real? Could could he give answers to the hardest questions that she could ask? Now, do you have questions? If you could ask God one question, what would it be? The, The church where I served with Kevin once sent postcards into the surrounding community, actually we did it a number of times, that had printed really big on the front of the postcard, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? And and invited people to a program that we were hosting where people could ask lots of questions about life and anything they they wanted. And one day I got a phone call from a man whose name was Dale. And he said, I got your postcard and I'm interested, but I don't think you want me to come. I said, why not? He said, well, I'm 80 years old. I've been a recovering alcoholic for 30 years who should have died years ago. I don't think I believe anything that you believe, but I know that I don't have much time left and I have a lot of questions. And I said, you're exactly who I want to come. Dale didn't have the answers to the hard questions of life any more than the Queen of Sheba did. But what led him to make that call? The same thing that put the Queen of Sheba in a caravan for a thousand miles. The possibility, the hope that someone else might have the answer to those questions. That's point number one. The queen's curiosity now point number two when the queen gets to jerusalem and gets her audience with solomon she's, she, she gets even more than she expected right his wisdom f- exceeds far more than what she had thought verse three solomon answered all her questions there was nothing hidden from her nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her the hospitality far exceeded what she had expected she was extremely impressed, not just with Solomon's house, but with his servants. They don't just do their jobs. So they, they actually seem to be happy, it says in verse 8, right? The prosperity of the kingdom far exceeded anything that she had expected, and it's real. Much of the other parts of chapter 10, which we didn't read all of, they're written, they're written to impress upon the reader the truth of Israel's wealth and prosperity. This book was written later in Israel's history to the people of Israel at a time of poverty and exile, and the legends of Solomon's days probably often seemed to the people then like they were just snowflectors, but it wasn't a story. It was true. This is actually what it was like during the reign of King Solomon. Verses 14 and 15 summarize the annual tax income, 666 talents of gold, and about 20 tons, hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe a billion dollars, right? Plus, the income from the extensive trading operations that were, were going on. Verses 11 and 12 talk about the, the wood and jewel trade with Ophir. Verse 22, which we didn't read, tells us about another uh, fleet of ships, the, the Tarshish fleet, probably traveling to lands in the, in the west, maybe in the area of Spain across the, the Mediterranean that brought gold and silver and ivory and apes. And, and yeah, even, did you read that? Peacocks. Verses 26 to 29, right, which we we also didn't read at the end of chapter 10, they talk about this extensive horse trading uh, operation between lands to the west and lands to the east. And the author of Kings isn't telling us all of this reluctantly or or with embarrassment. He's telling us these things with, with excitement, with enthusiasm, as if to say, look at what God's wisdom in God's land among God's people can do. And the queen of Sheba hears it, and then she sees it, and she experiences it. And it literally leaves her breathless, it says. There was no more breath in her, verse 5. Then in verse 6 and 7, she says to Solomon, the report was true. But I didn't believe it until I came and I looked at it with my own eyes. And and the half wasn't told to me. I, I heard something great. It's even greater. It's even truer than I thought. She had heard the report. She came to check it out. And Solomon was not a snowflector. It was true. It was all true. In fact, it was better than true. See, and this is really important. It's not enough to just make the claim and then invite people to ask questions. You actually have to have the answers to those questions. And Solomon and his kingdom deliver. It's the same thing with us. Right? When it comes to life's biggest questions, you... You need real answers. It's not enough for someone to just say, I'll listen to your questions. You need the answers. It was a couple of years ago now, and it was a, a sermon that was on video during COVID, so I don't know if I remember it, let alone many of you remember it. But, but there was a, an episode in that old TV series, ER, and it ran for 15 seasons on you know network tv from 94 to, to 2009 it was a hospital drama and, and in one of those episodes they have a, a patient named named Truman who is dying of cancer and and he's begging to talk to someone because he has questions not medical questions big questions and, and he had been a he's, he has these big questions because he had been a prison guard no uh, he had been a prison doctor who had wrongly executed an innocent man and now he's dying and he doesn't want to die with the guilt on his head so he's asking the big questions the 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 medical attendants they don't know what to do they call the hospital chaplain now she's not a christian this this chaplain but she's a very well-meaning woman who obviously cares about people you don't go into a profession unless you care about people who are suffering but as she's talking to to Truman, it becomes clear that she doesn't have anything real to offer him. She's willing to listen to the questions, but she doesn't have any answers. And she's saying, you know, new age kind of stuff, and you know, it wasn't your fault, you can't blame yourself, and you know, it's, it, it, we all just do the best we can. But Truman is, he's facing death right in the eyes, and he's desperately looking for something more than that, he knows he's guilty, he knows he bears blame, and he's looking for something solid that he can take to the grave. And this is what he says. He gets more and more impatient with the, with the chaplain, and he says, he says to her, I need answers. And all your questions and your uncertainty, they're only making things worse. I need someone who will look me in the eye and tell me how to find forgiveness, because I'm running out of time. the biggest question we could ever ask is that one, where do I find forgiveness? Look, I don't have time to to prove the point right now because you might say, look, I'm not a prison doctor murderer, and probably most of you aren't. But in comparison to the perfection of the God whose glory filled Solomon's temple, who created and sustains the world in which you take every breath and who is perfect in his holiness by that standard we are all dying and running out of time and along comes Jesus in Luke chapter 11 and says that for all the wisdom and the answers of Solomon behold he says something greater than Solomon is here and he's talking about himself Jesus is infinitely greater than Solomon. Greater knowledge, greater wisdom, greater wealth, greater power, and he provides far greater benefit to his subjects than material peace and prosperity for 40 years. Jesus provides forgiveness, and he does it by sacrificing his own personal wealth and his own riches, and he does it for you and for me. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What's Paul talking about? Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, who had far more riches than a few hundred gold shields and control over a couple of lucrative trade routes. Far more riches. And he's talking about the poverty of the cross where Jesus died to pay the penalty that we do deserve, so that we can have a forever kingdom that we don't. Truman, that guy in the hospital on ER, he's looking for answers to the most important question that you could possibly ask. How does a guilty sinner inherit the riches of the kingdom? Where do I find forgiveness? And the answer is here. It's only in Jesus. It's only on the cross. So what's the response to that? Look at point number three. What's the queen's response to Solomon? Well, we talked about a little bit of her response already. She confesses her unbelief in verse 7. She flat out says, I didn't believe it. I didn't. I doubted. I doubted the truth claims. But now she believes. I've seen it, she says. I don't doubt anymore. It's true. It's all true. It's better than true. And then what does she do? Look at verse 9. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. What does she do? she praises God. It's exactly what Hiram, the king of Tyre, back in chapter 5, it's exactly what he did when he came to Solomon, when he said, blessed be the Lord this day, because he had seen the glory of God in the kingdom of Solomon. Now then, after the experience of God's beauty, after realizing she was wrong, and after believing what she had heard then, then, now, and not before this, she gives Solomon the gifts that she had brought, Solomon doesn't need the gifts, right? All of chapter 10 testifies to the fact that he has superior wealth, but he receives it as an appropriate honor and tribute, and he gives the queen in return, it says in verse 13, all that she desired. Now, it may be a little bit of a stretch to completely and precisely use this as a metaphor of of salvation and how we come to faith in Jesus, but it certainly does fit the pattern, Faith begins when we realize the insufficiency of what we have and its inability to satisfy us, And when we encounter a claim that there is something more than what we have, that's what happened to the Queen of Sheba. She encountered a claim that there was someone, there was something more than what she had. And the magnitude of that claim compels us to check it out, to see whether it's just a fanciful snowflector or it's real. And then we see that it's all true. We confess our unbelief. We put our faith in what we now know. We praise the glory of the king who has revealed it to us. We give to that king what we have as an act of worship, knowing that while he doesn't need it, he'll certainly return to us even more than we possibly put in and that he will provide for us everything that we truly and rightly desire. That's what happened to the queen. That's what happens when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Have you made that journey to Jesus? This isn't me just asking, or isn't just me making the connection, by the way between what the queen of Sheba is doing here and Jesus the Messiah. It's not just me making this connection. Solomon makes the connection to the Messiah. Psalm 72, written by Solomon, and it's talking about the Messiah. This is what it says. Solomon writes in verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 72, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him, talking about the Messiah, render him tribute. May the the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Then he writes in verse 15 of Psalm 72, long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him, may prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. It's the same thing in Isaiah, the same thing Isaiah would say in Isaiah chapter 60. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. All those from Sheba Isaiah, writing in Isaiah chapter 60. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news and praises to the Lord. Now, Isaiah wrote years and years after Solomon lived and someone from Sheba came to Israel in Solomon's day. Years after that. But Isaiah is making the connection from that visit to those who will one day come to the Messiah to worship. To the baby born in a manger to whom visitors from the east would come, bringing tributes of gold and frankincense and myrrh, pointing to a suffering servant who offers forever healing by his own wounds. See, the queen's response here is a preview of the flow of the Gentiles that will go to the God of Israel as they recognize him as the one true Lord over all things and his Messiah as their Savior. Now, finally, we have the warning. The queen's warning. In Luke chapter 11, I already referenced this, but when Jesus makes that comment about himself and he says something greater than Solomon is here, when he makes that comment, when he says that, he's actually making a larger point, a bigger point. He, he's talking at that segment of Luke chapter 11 about the end of the age, about the final judgment, when he's going to come back and he's going to return and, and all people will be, will be judged according to the perfect holy standard of God. And he says that at that time... Here's his full comment, comment from Luke eleven thirty one. He says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Did you hear what he says? The queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, he calls her, the queen of Sheba is going to appear again, and she's going to appear to condemn those who refuse to believe the truth about the God of Solomon. It's a warning. It's a warning from the Queen of Sheba to take care with the knowledge that we have been given. Now, this is a warning, by the way, that Solomon needed too. For, for all of his fame and fortune, for all of this generally positive picture that we have of, of the prosperity of Israel here in 1 Kings chapter 10, for all that, there are a number of real warnings embedded in this chapter to Solomon that he should have seen. The explicit warnings of Deuteronomy 17 to kings to beware about acquiring gold for the wrong reasons, to not acquire horses from Egypt, that would have rung in the ears of any student of Torah as they read this. The warnings to Solomon that he ought to have seen not to put his trust in in chariots and political alliances to protect the nation, but to put his trust in, in the Lord. It should have been a caution to Solomon. In fact, it becomes a rather sad story in chapter chapter 11. Ironic and tragic that the queen of Sheba and the king of Tyre seem to recognize God's worth more than Solomon will in just a few short verses. But for now, let's listen ourselves to the warning of the queen. We should listen to that warning too. We hold in our hands every time we pick up the Bible a far greater, a far more comprehensive understanding of the glory of God's plan and the way the big questions of life and our forgiveness, the way those questions are answered. Far more extensive and comprehensive than anything that Solomon knew. The question, certainly not, not for anyone here today, is not whether you've heard it or you've seen it because you have. If, you hear, if you're if you here, you've heard it and you've seen it. The question is not that. The question is, will you believe it? and will you humble yourself beneath it? Jack Kozlowski, uh, whose memorial service I attended yesterday, he believed it, and it changed him. Once years ago, Jack was invited to preach at the Philadelphia Rescue Mission, and they introduced him uh, to this room filled with the poor and the neglected of society, those whom the world had largely turned their backs on. They introduced him as as a police chaplain who had served as a city policeman. And many of these folks, not having had the best personal experience with policemen in their lives, they, they began to boo as Jack approach, approached the podium. And immediately and uncontrollably, Jack began to cry, began to weep. In an instant, the Holy Spirit began to convict him of the sin in his own life. Now, he wasn't thinking of every police officer everywhere, but he was thinking about himself. And if you talked to him, you knew that there were tons of things that he had regretted. Not quite to the Truman ER kind of level, but lots of regrets. And he knew that for himself, he had spent a career looking down on people just like this. He had spent many patrol nights trying to get rid of them without caring about any of them. And at his worst, he had harmed them. And so he wept, not because he was embarrassed by the booze, but because he was convicted of his sin. When he was able to compose himself, he raised his voice in front of the crowd and he said, Stop! I'm just another sinner like you bringing a message of salvation and forgiveness. And the crowd went silent. And the boos turned to cheers as the audience heard the message of the gospel. The message of salvation, forgiveness and rescue... It should cause us to weep with humility when we consider ourselves and then it should lead us to shout it with boldness because it is the answer to all of our questions and it is the truth that we seek. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table this morning, we pray that what you have done on our behalf and the forgiveness that you offer would be at the front of our minds. That we would realize we do not deserve this sacrifice, but we are given it. And we are given it as a sign, as a pointer, as an act of your grace to us so that we are able to experience your real presence among us today. And we praise you for the word of God that points us to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.